I wanted to let you know I'm supposed to make an announcement before I start, um, which I'm the best announcement maker ever. That's a, I'm the right person for that job. Um, we've been working, you know, on launching um, um, a foster care ministry, orphan and foster care ministry. And the official launch date for that is going to be October 3rd. And October 3rd, there will be opportunity for us and for others in our community who show interest in fostering. Um, in theory, if all works out the way that we're planning, um, folks from our body and community will be able to um, take all the classes and do all the paperwork. Everything that's required to foster, we'll be able to do it here at Christian Renewal. Um, and we will... Um, We'll provide food and try to help support. And so one of the things that we're doing is as we prepare for that October date, there's other organizations involved that we've got to communicate with. And um, so we're working for that date. Um, it's today we're announcing that we are going to start to build teams, support teams. And so maybe you're here and you'd say, you know, we're not... We're not in a season to be able to foster, but we would like to be able to help. Um, so there are four teams that you could sign up for today. Um, one would be a prayer team. We want every family that fosters in our church to have prayer covering and support so that when we're having a day, we're able to say, hey, you pray for me before I lose my head, um, which every parent in the room says yes and amen. We, we need some prayer support. Two, we're going to have a handyman team. So sometimes when you're going through the process to be able to foster or adopt, um, they check your windows and your fire alarms and there's sometimes a lot that goes on with that. And so, so we know some of you men in the church could say, you know, like, Hey, I could jump in and fix fire alarms and do that kind of thing. Um, we're gonna have a childcare team, some teams that are available to, um, give parents the night off in Jesus name and a meal train team that will help with meals. And so if you want to sign up for any of those things, if you would say, hey, you know, we're probably not in the season to foster, but we do want to help families that are, um, you can sign up today at the Connect station in the lobby. Um, you can click, it's called Renew Families, is officially the um, the ministry title, Renew Families. You can click that and sign up to be on the prayer team, handyman team, child care, or meal train team. Um, or you can go to the homepage of our website and you'll find that same link where you could sign up to help. And we're just thankful for your selflessness. Haley and I were driving in the car this week, and it's become pretty popular to critique the church. You know, you get all these kind of memes and stuff going around about how bad the church is. And it's the reason the world doesn't want Jesus is because the church is so bad. Um, and Haley and I were just saying how frustrated we get with that because um, the church we know is faithful and selfless. And I told Haley, if I asked today, we need 10 people to move a widow, we'd get 50 people that show up. And um, so I just say thank you for, for your sincerity, for your gospel diligence, for your willingness to sweat um, to make Jesus known in the earth. And I'm a little bit defensive when people start critiquing the church because I'm, I'm so honored to serve Jesus with you. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray over the word. We'll get going this morning. Lord Jesus. We just thank you for the privilege and opportunity to study this holy scripture today together. Lord, we know that it's inspired by the breath of the Spirit. And so this morning we ask for you to be present in this room. Lord, there are trials and valleys that we find ourselves in. And one word from the Lord brings us out, delivers us. And so this morning, Lord, we're just asking for you to be present, for you to speak. Hide me, Lord, behind the cross, and you minister. You have your way. It's the voice of the Spirit we're after. And every heart say amen. Amen. 
Well, Helen Limmel was the daughter of a Methodist pastor. She was born in the year 1863. Her family migrated to the U.S. in her preteen years, and she was sharp, bright, future, um, wrote, I don't know, something like 500 hymns and poems, and um, she taught voice lessons at Moody Bible Institute. She traveled everywhere singing. Um, she met her husband in Europe, a European man who was really wealthy. Um, they had two kids together in her younger years. In her midlife, she started to lose her sight, and um, she would go totally blind, and her husband abandoned her in that season when she lost her sight because of the hardships that came with that. Um, and so her midlife was trying, and you can find all over the internet little biographical accounts of her life. And one thing they always say is that um, people would always ask her, Sister Helen, how are you doing? And she would always say, I'm doing well in all things that matter. <laughs> and in other words, life has hardships, but in the things that count, God's good. And um, at the age of 55, she was given a track entitled Focused, written by a, a really interesting missionary. Um, and the track was from Hebrews 12:2, which says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. She was struck by that line, fixing our eyes on Jesus. She was reading the track while she was walking down the street in the city. And she stopped immediately and began to sing. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Look full on his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Blind woman in the middle of the street writes spontaneously one of the most famous hymns. She recalled the account by saying, Suddenly, as if I, com I was commanded to stop and listen, I stood still, and singing in my soul and spirit was the chorus, with not one conscious moment of putting word to word to make rhyme, or note to note to make melody. She said spontaneously, as she thought of Hebrews 12, to fix your eyes on Jesus, she just began to sing, Turn your eyes to Jesus, look full on his wonderful face. Well, there's a Christian classic written in the late 1600s by a man named Isaac Ambrose. It's a beautiful book called Looking Unto Jesus, where Isaac Ambrose was theologically minded, a pastor. He was laying in bed with a great sickness and thought for sure that he'd die. And he was meditating on that same line of scripture from Hebrews 12 too, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And he said to the Lord, I believe the greatest commandment of Scripture is that we set our eyes on Jesus. And he said to God, if you'll heal me, I'll get out of this bed and I'll put all of my energy to write a work teaching the church to focus on Jesus. The book is beautiful. Like Chapter 2 talks about the fact that when we look at Jesus, we are commanded to look away from everything else. Even earthly blessing and the goodness of God in, in our children. He said that even those things we look away from. And the, the spiritual man must gaze upon Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. Looking unto Jesus. What did these saints find in this little phrase, turn your eyes to Jesus, that motivated their lives to follow him more faithfully to persevere? Well, as we move to John 1.14 today, it's one of the most fascinating and important passages of all of Scripture. We're doing one line today. Guys, forgive me. One line. Um, we'll find John say, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father. He was full of grace and truth. John says, We saw the glory of God. In the person of Jesus. And what our eyes saw 
transformed all of our lives for the rest of history. Beholding the incarnate Christ transformed us fully. Well, let's read and we'll pick apart John's ideas really carefully to the best of my ability. John 1.14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. First, the Word. We said before that John's prologue, remember again that this is the introduction to John's gospel. In his prologue, it takes a poetic shape. So in the poetic form of John's prologue, he intends to kind of circularly revisit ideas. So when we get to 114, we're revisiting the idea of the logos, the word. We haven't pursued that theme now for a couple weeks because John turned from it. But now he returns to the idea of referring to the pre-incarnate Jesus as the Logos of God, the Word of God. And as he turns to this concept, he intends for your mind to recall everything that he said prior about Christ being the Word. And so for a moment, let's just jog our memory to consider what he has said concerning the Word. Remember, he starts his Gospel, John 1-1, by saying, In the beginning was the Word. He echoes Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. And he wants us to remember that Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, he has no beginning. If you allowed your mind to think back through eternity past, as long as your mind could possibly imagine, Christ was. In the beginning, he did not begin. He was in the beginning. And so Christ, John wants you to know, is eternal. He is co-eternal with the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So from eternity past, forever, the Word, Christ, dwelt with the Father and the Spirit in perfect, harmonious unity. They had total union forever. No fraction in relationship. Just perfect peace that existed between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, again, forever. Before time even began. The Father, Son, and Spirit dwelt together. In the beginning was the Word. He had no beginning. He was with God in perfect union. And the Word was God. So Christ dwelt with the Father in perfect union. He's a distinct person from the Father. Yet He is God. We find Trinitarian doctrine. We worship one God who exists in three persons in perfect union. Those three persons share fully all the attributes of God. So John jogs your memory. He pulls you up again to high theology of Christ. He is saying, remember the majesty and the brilliance and the wondrous nature of Christ who has existed forever. He made all things. Nothing came into being that he did not create. He is the eternal, beautiful God of the universe. It's like he's dragging your mind higher and higher. Think of him higher and higher. And then he says this, and this word, eternal logos, became sarks. And it's as if your mind's intended to be drugged down to the ground. He became flesh. And that word is almost profane to use in a word speaking of God. 
It's common and mundane. There's nothing about the word sarks that is holy. Flesh. We are flesh. And notice what John says. He says, that word, that eternal, brilliant, majestic, omnipotent, omnipresent, sovereign God of the universe, he became sarks. He didn't merely clothe himself in flesh, but he experienced all of humanity. He didn't just wear a veil and look like a human, but he became a human. In all of its intricacies and frustrations and ups and downs, he became flesh. Now, many heretical movements will, will tell you that, no, he was some kind of ghost man that floated around the earth, or, or maybe they'll say he was God, but he, didn't, he wasn't really man. He just put on a shell. But that's not what John said. John said he became Sarks, flesh. He's not kind of God. He's totally, fully God. And he is not kind of a man. He's totally a man. He assumes all of humanity. Meaning, consider Luke saying that he grew in favor with God and man. He, he physically experienced growth stages. He went through adolescence and he went through puberty. Imagine Christ in puberty. doesn't seem like that should be in the same sentence. He knew what it was like to work in the summer heat. He knew what cold nights were. He knew what it was like to be really, really hungry. When he fasted in the wilderness for 40 days, he was not exempt from hunger. He didn't get a pass. So his fasting was somehow supernaturally supported. He didn't feel hunger. No, he's fully human. And so his stomach growled and he ached and he grew tired and lethargic. When the enemy comes to tempt him in the wilderness, he feels all of that. The enemy says, command these stones to turn to bread. He's hungry. He grows tired and he naps. He weeps full of human emotion. He feels emotion like we do. So he stands at Lazarus' tomb and he weeps. No, he didn't become kind of a man. He was fully flesh. Fully sarks. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he prays and he sweats like great drops of blood. We've talked about this before, but essentially what happened is he sustained um, what we call fight or flight for too long. And his body begins to break down under the pressure. And his physical body begins to, literally from his pituitary glands, that's not the right gland, from his sweat glands comes blood. Anatomy's not my thing, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Seth, Seth, I'm off topic now. Seth, um, Seth likes um, likes geography, and so he's always talking about maps and countries. And anytime he starts to talk to me about something in India or something, I always say, archaeology's not my thing, man. That's what I always say to him. <laughs> I'm not into archaeology. <laughs> he's fully man. Feels... So John says, the Word, the pre-incarnate, holy, sovereign, magnificent, glorious, endlessly glorious Word became flesh. That should be mind-boggling. Then he says, that Word which became flesh dwelt among us. 
Literally, the Greek here reads, he tabernacled among us. Your mind should think of the Feast of Tabernacles, where the Jews, for a week, essentially camped. They lived in booths together and celebrated when God led them out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. They, for a week, were required to camp, to set up a booth. Literally, the text says, Jesus set up his tent among us, in our presence. He lived near us in proximity. God has not required you to somehow ascend from your humanity, to find some spiritual secrets, to, to elevate it out of your body and into some spiritual realm to encounter Him. God is not saying, climb the ladder with all of your righteous works. No, He came down to us. He's not a God who says, pursue me, work harder. He's a God who humbles Himself and moves into our territory. He lived in close proximity. In the incarnation, Jesus came near to us, near to the first century disciples who lived intimately with him and told us of who he was and what he was like. Jesus loved to share meals with people, to eat. He had a physical body to feed, after all. He's my kind of dude. Somebody get the barbecue out, you know what I'm saying? Jesus loved to share meals with people. He loved to talk over dinner. Jesus laughed a lot told late-night stories. He dwelt among us. Jesus, think of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Um, in her lowest hour, when all the Pharisees have stones ready to peg the lady, Jesus lifts her up, leads her to repentance. Think of Mary, the woman filled with demons, Jesus drives out the demons and then spends the rest of his life with her, right? Like allowing her to minister with him and gives her purpose and calling. He lived in her midst. But dwelling among us, living in proximity with us, does not just include all of the beautiful things about community and about his character in community. It also includes all the negative things concerning community. So Jesus dwelt among us Jesus was gossiped about. Some of you would say, my family's always slandering me. Man, Jesus' family slandered him. Some of you would say, my coworkers misunderstand me. Jesus is the greatest misunderstood one of all of history. You would say, people, 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 they lie and they cheat and they deceive and they try to paint me out to be something I'm not. Jesus. Said people are plotting against me. His entire ministry, people were trying to figure out a way to kill him. Think about what that feels like. Turn the corner and they're trying to set a trap for you. You say, I know suffering. Oh, he knows suffering. He knows what it's like to dwell among us. So when Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Don't rush past the idea of Jesus being able to sympathize with us. He was tempted like we're tempted. When we think of temptation, we typically think of sexual temptation or the temptation to steal money or, or lie. But Jesus was tempted with all of those things. But there's also a temptation when your neighbor gossips about you to rise up with frustration. Strike me on my right cheek, I'm tempted to pop you back. 
Jesus felt all those temptations too. When they nail him to a cross, he has the ability. He said, if I would, I'd call legions of angels to deliver me. He has the ability to deliver himself. But rather he prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's not just tempted to perform some sexual act of immorality. He's also tempted to live bitter. The same way that you're tempted to live bitter. He's also tempted to retaliate. The same way that you're tempted to retaliate. But he knows well what Paul quotes in Romans 12, that vengeance is the Lord's, and he will repay. So in his becoming flesh, he experiences all the beauty of community, and he experiences all the hardships of it. Man of sorrows. The prophets call him despised and rejected. His soul was crushed. So John says, consider this, the eternal Logos of old, the God of all creation became flesh like us and then he lived among us. And here's the kicker. We saw his glory. We have seen. What did they see? His doxa, his glory, his brilliance, his splendor. What does John mean when he says, we saw his glory? Does he mean we saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration? When his entire body gleamed with light, the glory of God. When he was white as bleach. Does he mean, do you remember Moses' face when he veiled it? Times a hundred. We watched Jesus shine with glory. Maybe yes. Does he mean when we were in a storm... And the oceans raged. He just walks out on top of it. And then he tells the seas, be still. And they obey him. Does he mean we saw his glory as he commanded the seas to sit still? Probably. Does he mean when our friend Lazarus laid in the the grave for four days, he just said, Lazarus, come out. And that dead body got up. He saw his glory when blind Barmaeus came. Sight. We saw his glory when thousands are hungry. He just makes bread. We saw his glory. I think he also means we saw him sit at the dinner table and laugh with tax collectors and invite them into grace and repentance. I think he means we saw his glory as he with great patience stopped and held children. I think he means we saw his glory as he continually listened and heard and was patient and explained to us the mysteries of the kingdom. We saw his glory and his kindness towards us. I think he means we watched as they drove nails into the palms of his hands and they they nailed him to a tree. And we knew he could get down if he wanted to get down. But he hung there because he loved us. He endured because he wanted us. We saw the glory of God through the suffering of Christ Jesus. I think he means we saw the glory and the goodness and the beauty of God in Jesus. The mercy of God. Not just in the miraculous, but in the content of his character. and the way he treated people, we saw the glory of God. So John says, the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Then you could say further, but John, what was his glory like we get it he was glorious but expound a little further man tell us more and john says first he was 
full of grace. Aren't you thankful this morning that the first attribute of Jesus is full of grace? Full of charis. That means unmerited favor. That means undeserved um, favor on your life. That means that when you encounter Jesus, you didn't have to earn anything. He was full of unmerited, undeserved grace towards you. When you sat down at the table with him, you didn't have to puff out your chest and prove why you were worthy of conversation. Your intellectual capacity means nothing when you sit before Jesus. He's got enough grace for even the dumb folks. We puff out our chests and we jockey with our egos. He was just, he just had love for whoever sat before him. And everyone could feel it, right? Like they didn't, they didn't need to perform. For once in your life, you could sit down with someone and have no need to perform or outdo your neighbor. He was just full of it. And, and full means it didn't run dry, right? Like he didn't rake up on the wrong side of the bed and then give you the eye, right? He was full of grace. It never ran dry. It just kept coming like a fountain in his soul. He was just constantly compassionate and merciful. When God describes himself to Moses, he says, I'm a God of mercy. Full of grace. John is inviting you to look on him and experience the graciousness of God. We saw his glory. It was fully gracious. Then John says, and he was full of truth. He taught us with integrity. He called a spade a spade. He didn't try to twist things to make you like him. He didn't care what religious leader was in the room. He was going to say what he was going to say. And he was truthful, not in the sense that, that, that he would ignore your sin. He would call your sin out. But always offered you an opportunity for repentance and restoration. He was truth, fully and totally truth. He had no need to impress the spiritual hierarchy of the day. Just cutting accuracy. Spade a spade. So when we look to him, we see what it means to live a gracious and truthful life. What it means to live biblically holy. We see a pattern of integrity. Full of integrity. With all of that in mind, trying to ponder what John is saying, I'd like to just make a few kind of concluding comments, implications that I think John intends for us to consider. In the incarnation of Christ, God becomes visible, touchable. John will say that in 1 John, the introduction, he'll say, the word which we heard and saw and touched and felt, he would say God manifested himself, became human so that we could grab him. And then the scriptures command you to fix your eyes on him. First, I want to say to you that we look on him for pleasure. We look on him. We're commanded to gaze our spiritual eyes on Christ for our own delight and pleasure. John Piper in one of his books, he writes a ton about the concept that's sometimes called Christian hedonism. I think he coined that term, but others talk about it. But it essentially means that um, God designed us to pursue happiness and pleasure. But that design, sometimes, you know, Augustine called it a God-shaped hole in your heart. You're always looking for fulfillment, for satisfaction, that God designed us that way in order that we may find him 
That we would pursue him, find him, and have pleasure in him. And so the first command is to look to Jesus to find your satisfaction. To find your delight. And Piper makes this point, which I think is really important. You've probably heard it before, but it's worth revisiting. Um, he talks about the idea of praise. And he says, when you go to a movie, and uh, it, it just takes your breath. You ever feel that way? Like you're in a movie for two hours, and you're like, what in the world just happened to my life? It was wonderful. When you leave the movie, and you go home, and you tell your friends, and you're you got to see the movie. you got to see it. It's brilliant. It's wonderful. you got to see the movie. You say that because you encountered what the movie had to offer. All right? You wouldn't say that about a movie you've never seen. You wouldn't go around and say, you got to see this movie. What's it like? I don't know. I never saw it. You go to a restaurant, right? It's a really, really good restaurant. And you tell your friends, you got to eat there, man. It's incredible. You say that because you've been satisfied by what the restaurant has to offer. Again, you wouldn't say that about a restaurant you've never been. That's what people do on reviews, right? When they're like, this restaurant's great. And you're like, your friend's just the owner. You've probably never been there. Um, to, to praise something that you've never encountered is just lip service. Right? When you eat at the restaurant and you're satisfied by what it desires, what it, what it offers, then you leave and you, you praise it, sincerely praise it. Piper points that it's the same concept of praise biblically. That you are first called to taste and see the goodness of God. To be satisfied in God. To allow your spiritual hungers to be fully pleased as you dwell on who the person of Jesus is. You are called to meditate on his person, to lay in bed at night and allow the Holy Spirit to whisper to you. You are called to love the voice of God, to search the scriptures, because you know if you could just find him, if you just learn one more thing about him, it satisfies your soul for the whole day. Right? Like, all of my life is this gazing on him, trying to find more of who you are, Jesus. Because I know that living a life just to fulfill my sexual desires, that's not satisfying. Right? Like we get caught up in this thing of like, I gotta prove how great of a person I am. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bolster up my ego and everyone around you is going, I, I don't wanna hang out with you. Right? Like trying to be fulfilled in your ego, living that way is awful. Trying to be fulfilled by pursuing your sexual desires, it's awful. If you think alcohol is really gonna fulfill you, you are dumb as a box of rocks. It's empty and it's dry. But when, you allow the, the hole in your heart to be satisfied in Christ. When my spiritual man is totally obsessed with gazing in his eyes. When I wake up in the morning and I get in my scripture and my coffee because I'm half dead. And I start to just meditate on the word. I start to say, you're beautiful and you're kind. He does, he meets me. And he does something to my soul. And I feel alive and whole and pleased. And when I say to my friends, you've got to have Jesus. It's not just lip service. It is founded upon the fact that I've really seen him. So when John says, we have seen his glory. He's not just giving you lip service. He's not just giving you tradition. Right? How many in the South say, Oh, I love you. I know Jesus. I love you. And it's like, do you really? He's not just giving you lip service. He's saying, We saw the glory of God. And you need to see it for yourself. When you learn to delight yourself in who Jesus is, then and only then can you really begin to pursue biblical holiness. 
Jesus, we look to Jesus for first pleasure and then for a pattern of holiness. And so those two things are intricately woven together. That's why John says, all who love him will fulfill his commandments. Love for him is what motivates us to fulfill his commandments. If you say to me, Caleb, I'm going to be holy. I'm going to not ever, I'm never going to touch alcohol. I'm never going to touch drugs. I'm going to live sexually pure. And that's, if that's not motivated on the fact that you are, you are deeply in love with Jesus, that will only manifest legalism. And again, I don't want to hang out with you, right? Like, I had enough of that. Any pursuit of righteousness that is separated from a deep satisfaction in the person of Jesus can only manifest religious garbage. So if we want to be a holy people, holiness is only this. It's seeing him, being satisfied in him, and then pursuing him. I've got to, I've got to have more of you. I want to look like you. I want to please you. It's about finding, grabbing, tasting, seeing, feasting on Jesus. And there you could say, oh, you're just religious because you don't watch movies that are profane. And I would say, no, I don't really care. I, I'm just trying to pursue Jesus. And there people may say, oh, you're, you're just a hypocrite. You don't, you know, you talk about not looking at pornography because you're hypocritical. And I'm like, no, I, I don't want to look at pornography because I really want to love Jesus well. And there we can find biblical holiness. We are commanded to look to Jesus for our own delight. Consider that again, that God created you to be satisfied in him. For my, for my own delight, for my own pleasure, I look to Jesus. And then I look to him for the pattern of holiness because what I see in him is beautiful and worthy and wonderful. Now y'all need to quit talking because we're going too long. Worship team, if you'll come. I want you to think of blind Helen Limwell saying, turn your eyes to Jesus. Look full on his wonderful face. And sick Isaac Ambrose saying, all of life is about finding him. It's why, why I am not satisfied to merely have a church that goes through the motions without first longing for the Holy Spirit to come and manifest himself upon our lives and to illuminate to us who Jesus is. We need more of the Holy Ghost in this room because the Holy Ghost loves to exalt Christ in our life. I'm not content with just intellectual Christianity. We need experiential, fundamentally experiential Christianity. Because John is not saying, we beheld an intellectual truth, an argument, and we love the argument now. We're going to argue it because we love it. He's saying, no, we beheld the glory of a person. And that person changed everything. First, if you stand to your feet and altar team, if you guys want to get in place first, if you're in the room and you've never fully given your life to Christ, maybe you've attended church your entire life. Maybe, you know, religion, you could, you could tell me all about the gospel, but you've never truly bowed your knee to Christ. We want you to know this morning that he is full of grace. Your salvation is not something you have to earn through your good works. Your salvation is a free gift of God given as we come to him in faith. We want you to know that we are fully aware of your sinful past, right? Like we know you've stolen. We know you've lied. We know you've committed acts of sexual immorality. We know, we know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
It's not about what you've done or haven't done. It is totally about whether or not you will bow your knee to Christ Jesus this morning. The blood of the Lamb of God is sufficient to wash you of your sin. The blood of the Lamb of God is sufficient to absorb all the wrath of God towards your iniquity. All you have to do this morning is really trust Him, is really give your life to Him. You could say, you don't know what I did last night, Caleb. And I say, I bet I could guess. I don't care what you did last night. I only care whether or not you're willing to bow your knee today. So stop playing games with God. Stop going through the motions. Stop walking out of the room every time someone shares the gospel. Today is the day of salvation. Turn. Trust Him. Find Him. Be satisfied in Him. Be satisfied in Jesus today. This is an offer, man. This is an offer this morning. Second, we felt as we prayed this morning, there were a few prophetic words that came forward. The prophetic word was essentially that there are some people in the room who are going through hard seasons in life. And as you go through hardship, you're hardening your heart. Because you've not yet acknowledged the mercy of God, the kindness of God, and and the fact that you can be honest about what you're going through, the fact that you can come to God and open up and confess, you're, you're continually hardening your heart. You're continually backing away from God. And the prophetic word was that, that quoted the Ezekiel passage, God turns hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. And if that's you this morning, you say, I know I'm getting hard. I know I'm tired. I know that I'm growing in bitterness. I know I'm growing in frustration. We believe the Holy Spirit is present in this room and ready to bring you healing and life, that God's ready to offer you a fresh drink from the river of God. Third, if you're struggling with any sickness or any kind of demonic oppression, we want to ask you to come and receive healing this morning. So the altars are open. I want you to come. If you need to give your life to Jesus, come. If you need healing and wholeness, come. If you need deliverance, come. Don't hesitate this morning. Come on and sing for me, Destiny. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. If you need peace, come. permeate over your soul today. There's no hole you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me, no shadow. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. Thank you, Jesus. There's no Till I leave the ninety-nine.
For 30 seconds as we get ready to close. Let's just thank him. Let your praise rise up. I thank you, Jesus. Come on, praise him. In every valley. In the darkest shadows. In every hardship, you're good. Come on, I bless you. In the midst of the storms, I bless you. And I set my eyes on you this morning. Come on, begin to pray that. I set my gaze on Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. I serve no other God. I'll pursue no other pleasure. It's all about you. It's all for you. You alone are the satisfaction of our lives, God. You're the joy of your church. You're the treasure we desire. And I just love you, Jesus. And I just love you, Jesus. I just love you. Come on, I just love you. I just love you. I just love you. I just love you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Lord, let the gaze of our families, the gaze of our children, the gaze of our homes be set fully on the face of Christ Jesus. It's you alone we worship. You alone we serve. In Jesus' name we pray. Let every saint say amen. Amen. Well, you guys know how we close. The altars are open. Worship team is going to hang out. You don't have to rush out of here if you need ministry. If not, you are officially dismissed. We love you so much. We're praying that the presence of God would continue to move in your lives in this community. I don't deserve it.